This is the What Now Podcast. There is value and growth in vulnerability, about being vulnerable and open and talking about what it means to suffer, but also to heal. Treatment works. And the more we talk about it and open up about it and share what works for one person may not work for another, which works for another, you know, we can start to be a collaborative effort Mm -hmm. to eliminate the stigma and be well and to help each other be well. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss the stigma that surrounds cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a respectful, open, and honest way in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Today, I will be speaking with Jane Clayson Johnson, who is an award-winning journalist widely known for her work at CBS News, ABC News, and on the nationally syndicated NPR program On Point. At the age of 36, she chose to step away from her career to get married and raise her two children. When her children were young, Jane started having dark thoughts, feeling unworthy of her family, wanting to fall asleep and fade away, and even about planning her own funeral. It wasn't until her husband stepped in to get her the help she desperately needed that she was able to get diagnosed with depression and start her journey of healing. Jane's personal experience with depression prompted her to open up and write a book, Silent Souls Weeping about her brain illness in an effort to change the stigma, shame, and isolation surrounding the disease and advocate for those whose lives have been altered by mental illness. Today, we will share important information about depression to empower listeners to advocate for themselves, their friends, and loved ones. I'm here today with Jane Clayson Johnson, where we're going to be discussing depression and mental health. Jane, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's so nice to be with you and to see you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Before we jump in, I'd like to just have our listeners get to know you a little bit if they're not familiar with you. So I would like to invite you just to share a little bit about yourself, just where you grew up, where you attended school, what you studied. Sure. So I grew up all around the country. My dad is a surgeon, and so he was in medical training for many years when I was a kid. So we lived in Salt Lake and Boston and Nashville and Seattle and Northern California. And so I went to Brigham Young University on a music scholarship, actually. I play the violin, and I thought that that's what I wanted to do until I found the journalism program at BYU and fell in love. Sort of the rest is history. I worked at KSL Television in Salt Lake City for many years and then went to ABC News in Los Angeles, where I worked on the network news broadcast World News Tonight and Nightline and Good Morning America and traveled the world doing international stories. The refugee crisis in Macedonia, the NATO airstrikes in Kosovo, the fall of the Suharto government in Jakarta, Indonesia, just a lot of international news. And then after a few years, I went to CBS News in New York, where I hosted the Morning Network program with Bryant Gumbel. And that was its own adventure, interviewing world leaders and Secretary of State one minute, Martha Stewart the next. It was just a real adventure. And Then I left that to move to Boston to marry my husband at 36 years old. And I had two small children and have written a couple of books since. And that's my life story. Okay, we're done. That is incredible. (laughs) That is a journey. That is an adventure. It has been a journey. And you know what? I never anticipated or expected or planned it. Honest and true. I mean, I went to college with one vision and came out 25 years later with a totally different life 
So I really believe everybody has their own journey and their own path and their own experiences. And just hopefully along the way, each of us can uplift and help each other as we go. Absolutely. I mean, it seems like your path was directed because you went with one intention to be a music major and left being a pretty influential reporter and spokesperson and influencer in broadcasting. I was at KSL for many years, and I remember the day that I got a call from an agent in New York who said, we've seen your work on somebody else's tape that they sent us to get a job in New York. (laughs) No way. Oh, boy. Okay. And I I remember being scared because I, that was like the big time to me, you know? I mean, I can't do that, you know? And so weeks later, I had signed a contract at the networks and I was on my way and I just... The whole time I was there, I just always felt like this was a mission for me because especially related to the church, there were so many people that I interacted with who had never met a member of the church before, sort of in these sort of high echelons of journalism. And I just always felt like I had a two-pronged approach here to do a really good job as a journalist, but also to be a good example of my faith. Yeah. So you are maybe being used as an influencer for the church in a way. Heavenly Father knows what our skills and talents are. I remember talking to Astrid Tumanez, and she just felt led, like these doors started flying open for her. When she met the missionary, she joined the church when she was almost 11, and then she went down this path to BYU. And and it's like then the Ivy League started calling with her, you know, incredible intelligence. And I feel like I see that pattern with you as well. When you are capable and you are on the program, so to speak, the Lord will use use you to do incredible things. I think if you just remain close to him and try to listen to the promptings of the spirit and to try to know what is right, you'll always be guided. And that's really what I felt every step of the way. It wasn't always easy. In fact, it was very hard (laughs) on many occasions for long periods of time. But there was a reason for all that, because I think I've been led to do things and to talk about things now. I have a platform that otherwise I would not have had to be able to talk about some of the things that I have in in the book that I just wrote. And the book you wrote is phenomenal. I read it and I feel like not just every member of the church, everyone is touched by mental illness. I mean, I know in my own family, we've experienced that. We lost an uncle to suicide and a grandfather down the road to suicide, and it is real. Yes, it is. And it affects families. You know, I give speeches, and I started this a few months ago. I have people in the audience, large or small, stand up if they or someone they love has been impacted by depression and mental illness. And I'm not kidding, without exception, 95% of the room stands up. Everyone has a story. If they haven't been impacted, they know someone who has. Absolutely. I agree. In 2018, you released a book called Silent Souls Weeping, where you shared stories that address the reality of depression. So what motivated you to write a book about depression? Several years ago, when my children were very little, I started to experience a clinical depression unlike anything I had ever experienced before. It was harrowing and completely unexpected. I had had sort of the ups and downs of life experiences, you know, but nothing that a good cry or two or three couldn't get me out of. Mm -hmm. But this was totally different. And I started feeling like my husband deserved so much more than this, that my kids should be having a different mother. And I started fantasizing about my own funeral and the flowers and who would speak. And, you know, I didn't have a plan or a mechanism for making this happen. I was just in a deep depression and I wanted to fall asleep and fade away. 
And when I started to come out of this, when my husband sort of came in and took over, <laughs> took me to two doctors and we started to get treatment and help and medication and therapy, and I started to feel like myself again, I started to talk about what had happened to me and I realized how many people suffer, how many people are going through or have been through what I went through and so often in silence. And so I thought, we have got to talk about this more, especially in the church. Mm -hmm. And that's when the book was born. And I called Desert Book and I said, I want to write a book about depression. And there was silence on the other end of the line <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> and then my editor said, absolutely. And so I was off. And that started a three-year journey of writing and researching and interviewing 150 people for this book. And it was quite a journey. So tell me about that. So you interviewed 150 people for your book. And how did you decide on who you were going to interview? Where so it was kind of a, a reporter's journey. This is what I do. I kind of put my journalism skills to use when you're going after a story. You kind of have to find the people that you're going to interview. And so one led to the next and then two led to 10 more. And I didn't interview everyone that I talked to. I, of course, did pre-interviews and decided who would be best but I interviewed young and old and mission leaders and stake presidents and bishops and sort of regular folks in the church just to hear these experience and stories. And so I collected countless stories in these interviews, postpartum depression, missionaries who come home early with mental health struggles, kids and teens who suffer. There's an important chapter on suicide. There's another important chapter for caregivers, because if you live with or love someone who suffers... Yeah you're suffering too, right? And so all of these stories I collected over three years and every single one was recorded. So I had thousands of pages of transcribed interviews in a massive iCloud file, which honestly was the most overwhelming part of all this. So I just meticulously and carefully went through each interview, drew a line through what I heard, tried to identify themes and trends, and then wrote chapters based on that. Mm -hmm. Because it is powerful. There are several things that we'll talk about later. But I mean, there were a few things that did stick out to me. And I love, you know, we get into talking about with mental health, there's a lot of shame surrounding mm -hmm. mental health. There's a lot of isolation around mental health exactly. because people do not want to be exposed. They don't want to be seen as crazy. They don't want to be seen as incompetent, but they are very competent people. Absolutely. And you are the perfect example of that. Well, there are two strong themes that emerged in my interviews, stigma and what depression does to feelings of the spirit. And so you're right, the stigma, this number one idea that came up in nearly every conversation, the sense of embarrassment or shame, the word you used, attached not only to the diagnosis of a mental health issue, but to the medication prescribed or the therapy that you need to heal. Mm -hmm. And so time after time, interview after interview, this was an issue that came up. And I like to say to people, you know, if you had a broken arm or a thyroid deficiency, or you had a liver disease or diabetes, and you had to take insulin every day, you wouldn't worry about talking about going to the doctor to get a cast or to talk about taking your insulin because it saves your life, you know? Mental illness is not some sort of personality defect or character flaw. This is not something you can control or overcome if you just try harder. Right. If you just put your mind to it, if you just will yourself to be better, mental health and physical health are the same things. There's no difference, right? This is my message. Stigma busting means this. Mental health 
is no different than any other physical condition. It's the same thing. And we have to change our paradigm and change the way we think about these things so that we can come to a more better understanding of what people are going through, Mm -hmm. because then we can truly mourn with those that mourn. Mm -hmm. It is so true. And I like that you mentioned brain disease. If we could see it as a brain disease, (laughs) right? Yes. We see heart disease, lung disease. Why isn't it called a brain disease? So one woman that I interviewed um, told me that her pediatrician said this to her. Why don't we just call this brain health? Why don't we change the name? Not not mental health. That has such a negative connotation. Let's change it to brain health. We talk about heart health, you know, heart health is so important. Well, brain health is critically important too. And so I found that that really eliminates some of the stigma if you just talk about brain health and what you need to do to maintain good brain health. <laughs> Great. Everybody's on board for that. Yeah. It's almost changing up the vocabulary. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's changing the vocabulary. It's changing how we talk about it. And changing the vocabulary is one thing. I think that leads to the next, which is just spitting out your stories. Everybody has a story, whether their own, their spouses, their children's. And I don't mean going around publicizing your pain on your sleeve. I mean that there is value and growth in vulnerability, Mary Alice. That's what I mean about being vulnerable and open and talking about what it means to suffer, but also to heal. Treatment works. And the more we talk about it and open up about it and share what works for one person may not work for another, which works for another, you know, we can start to be a collaborative effort Mm -hmm. to eliminate the stigma and be well and to help each other be well. I love that you said that because it leads into this quote that you had in Psychology Today in 2014, where you, in the chapter on shame, it talks about people with mental health issues internalize the stigma to develop a strong self-stigma. Yes. Ah. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think that it starts with ourselves and then we open up and start to talk about our own experiences with our family members. I mean, you've experienced it. You were very open at the beginning of this. How brave of you to say, my gosh, two of Mary Alice Hatch's relatives have died by suicide. My own daughter has suffered with terrible anxiety and debilitating. And, you know, we have done everything possible to help her. And the more we can start talking about that and opening up about the struggle, the less alone we feel, the less self-stigmatized we feel, and the less sort of broadly we point the finger and say, oh, wow she's crazy. (laughs) That family, huh? They had someone who was hospitalized. What's wrong with them? What's going on in that house that's not right? I remember one woman told me that she took her daughter to be hospitalized and didn't tell anyone because she said, quote, I didn't want people to think that we're crazy. But what better time to open up and say, this is a mental health struggle. This is real. This is just like if I went in to have my appendix out, I'm having some mental health challenges. One of the most devastating stories and really instructive stories in my book is the story of two sisters. One, both were hospitalized at the same time in different cities, one with an advanced cancer and the other with mental health issues and suicidal ideation, meaning she had thoughts of taking her own life. And what was so interesting to me is how each of these women was treated so differently by family and friends. The sister with cancer, an outpouring of love and support and meals and visits and phone calls. And she so richly deserved this, right? It was a terrible situation. But for the sister with 
mental health struggles, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, nothing even close to that. No phone calls, no coming to the hospital, but a lot of judgment Yeah. from people who loved her. Up oh, there she goes, back in the hospital again. But the truth of the matter is, each of those women was fighting for her life. Yes, acute huh? situations. Yes, with different physical conditions, right? Yeah. And how differently they were treated. And we've got to change that. We've got to change it. And that's the message of my book. And that you have a powerful quote in the book that talks about that, where it's not the casserole disease, right. you know, where right. you're sick and we'll bring on food and meals. And, and those are the people that really need the meals. Exactly. Those are the people who are incapacitated and they're trying to manage career and home and raising kids, but they can't function. That's right. And it is heartbreaking. I mean, I have a couple very close friends who have been in and out of mental institutions. They have six kids. No one visits them. No one calls them. No one knows what to say. Right. What advice would you give to people who want to do something, but they don't know what to do? So they pull back because they don't know what to do. Thank you for this excellent question. Thank you. So I think the most important thing is to say, is to just go over like you would do with anything else. Go over, take a plant. How are you doing? Take some muffins, you know? Can I help you with your kids? And maybe if you're uncomfortable to get into the situation a little bit easier, I understand that this may be a private sort of difficult moment. I want you to know, and here's the moment, that I've struggled or someone else that I know has suffered and here's what we did. And connect. And connect and validate. Mm -hmm. Validate the experience. This is something that's hard, but we can all get through this together. And most importantly, what can I do to help you? How can I help you? I remember a friend of mine was hospitalized uh, a couple of months ago. And another couple of friends were like, oh, well, what do we do? Should we go? Should we wait till she comes home? <laughs> and I drove up to the hospital that night you know, it's like my slippers are in the, you know, in the car. I was barely able to get out the door, but I went at like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night and I just went and sat with her and I just gave her a hug and I said, I'm here for you. And would it be okay if I brought a friend next time? Can I bring such and such so-and-so with me? And she said, absolutely. And then it almost normalizes the situation yes. in a way like, okay, we're not telling anybody about exactly. this and I'm not going to not bring anyone here because we're going to keep this secret. And that is what perpetuates the problem, isn't it? Exactly That right. secrecy, the isolation. And then that makes it even harder because they're isolated and they don't want to go out and they don't want anyone to know what's happening. Exactly right. And I think about this, M.A., with our missionaries who come home early with mental health struggles, you know. These missionaries who feel like they are isolated and alone and I couldn't do it, you know. This is how they're feeling. And I remember one mom sent out a blast email the day she found out her son was coming home and she said, I just want you to know Max is coming home. He had mental health struggles we didn't even know about. The mission president didn't even know about. But please welcome him. Come over. Don't worry about what you say to him. Just welcome him home. And because she did that, people came you know, and they welcomed him. I get chills talking about it. They just loved him. And I worry about these kids staying in the church. I feel the stigma is so strong when you come home and you quote unquote have failed at something, you know, this sort of self stigma. I couldn't do it. We want you. We love you. There's no reason that you should be ashamed about this. And I just so that is the powerful message that we each have to change our perspective about how we interact with people who are struggling. Just like any other physical condition, mental health requires the same approach, the same treatment, the same understanding and attention. Absolutely. I mean, that is 
what started this whole podcast series I did. My son came home early from a mission. He was there for five weeks. And when he came back, I went through depression for four months. I couldn't leave my house. I was so stressed out. I didn't want everyone asking me why he came home. Did he sin? Did he do something wrong? No, he just didn't want to share the gospel that way. Yes. It triggered so much anxiety and depression for him that he's never had in his life yes. by that structured, heavily intense experience. And it just changed my approach to how I thought of people who came home early from missions and realized it's not for everybody. And you're not a bad church member if you don't go or if you come home early. <laughs> There's so much stigma yes. surrounding certain things like yes. that in the church's cultural norms. And there is a stigma around depression. And that's one thing we're trying to help everyone understand. Why is there so much shame associated? Why is there a stigma around there, but there's not with heart health right. or diabetes? Why is it that mental illness is so negative? What can we do to change yeah, that? Is it just yeah. awareness, openness? It's all of those things. It's awareness. It's openness. I mean, I feel like one of the big struggles for church members is when depression hits, when mental illness hits, the ability to feel the spirit. And when you can't feel the spirit and you feel like God doesn't love you or that you're cut off from his love, that you're cut off from his spirit, that changes your life. And when missionaries, for example, come home, and I remember interviewing one missionary, Lindsay, who was suicidal on her mission. She was so depressed. And she told me that she would see a bus coming down the street. She'd be walking with her companion and she'd have the urge to jump in front of the bus. And what was most distressing is she felt like this was all her fault, that she must not be working hard enough, that she must not be obedient enough because, my goodness, I'm on a mission. Shouldn't I have the spirit always with me, right? And so this must be my fault. So we bring this onto ourselves. And would we take responsibility for the leg that we broke when we fell, fell off the curb? Would we take responsibility for the thyroid imbalance that I have to take a medication for every day? It yeah. just happens. Sometimes these things just happen. So whether it be stigma, whether it be the inability to feel the spirit, there's so many other causes that I can go into that I talk about in the book. But I just think stuff like this, you know, your willingness to talk about your son and your experience, that is at the heart of all this. Thank you. That's what we need more of. Yeah, just the honesty and not being afraid to be open because it's interesting when we're open, when I've been open about Trevin coming home early and how that impacted me and our family in this culture as prominent people in the culture. Wow, he's the only kid who came home early from the mission in the whole family. And, and what that looks like for someone and the pressure. Yes. And that's hard. Yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about in your book, you talk about a woman who I was a Relief Society president. Her name was Lori. Oh, yes. <laughs> and she talks about depression becoming more normalized when it's talked about openly, which we're just discussing now, and how important it is to be committed to treatment. I take my medicine. I get exercise. I try to get enough sleep. I try to eat right. I treat my depression as if it's a chronic illness, which of course it is. Right. I think it's also important for church leaders to realize that people with mental illness can be capable leaders. That is a powerful statement. Yes. I love that Lori was a Relief Society president for nine years years and a stake young women president for seven years. What I love about Lori's story is that is the evolution in her thinking. So isn't that wonderful what you just read and what she said? But years ago, she was very embarrassed and felt highly self-stigmatized by a diagnosis she received when she was at BYU. She finally went to the campus health center. She couldn't sleep. She couldn't focus. She was crying all the time and she thought something's wrong with me. So she went to the doctor 
And she felt so ashamed because of a mental health history in her family and how that had been sort of treated and talked about in her own family. She then took that on and she took the medication that she'd been prescribed and she flushed it down the toilet. And she said, I thought I could will myself out of this, that I could do this myself. And so she had a lot of hard years after that. Her symptoms continued and she suffered in silence and had three children and finally had the courage to talk to her doctor to say something is not right. And here was the diagnosis I received before and I'm suffering. And again, the evolution in her thinking where once she was embarrassed and ashamed, now she talks openly and honestly. She jokes, she says, I am the happiest depressed person you will ever meet. <laughs> Because to what you said, I take my medicine, I exercise, I get good sleep, I watch my nutrition, I watch my thoughts, you know, DBT, CBT, all these therapies that work in conjunction. I remember talking to a, a doctor who was also a former bishop who treats a lot of mental health cases. And he said, you know, you can take the medication and it works, but you will not reach your potential unless you also pull in some of these other multifactorial approach, right? You got to take care of yourself. You got to accept your limitations. You got to bring in the spiritual aspects too. There's a spiritual and a physical component to treating these things. So back to your point about Laurie and sort of the evolution and thinking, and you can be a church leader and you can be effective and strong and still suffer and still have these mental health challenges. It doesn't change who you are. I say it again. Would you be embarrassed about your kidney stones, about your liver disease, about your gallbladder, whatever. It's the same thing. And being honest about it too and open allows other to be other people to be honest and open. And then it just reduces the stigma naturally. Yes. I love that you bring that up because that reminds me of Robert Millet. The amazing Robert Millet, one of the great thinkers in religious minds in our country, was a professor at BYU in the religion department, ran the religion department, has written dozens of religious pieces on our faith. He was a stake president in his 50s when he came down with clinical depression. And his story, I think, is so powerful because I think a lot of men especially, it's very hard to open up about these things. And so when Ro I called Robert Millett because I had read a little bit about his struggle and had heard and and he was very honest. He said, you know, when I was first in, in church leadership, I would look at someone who came to me and said, I'm depressed, I'm feeling this way. And he would say, oh, in his mind, he's thinking, oh, get off it. You know, what is so hard? Life is tough. Pull up your bootstraps. Oh, pick, it up, yeah. pick up your bootstraps, and, <laughs> yeah. you know. And he said, until it hit me. And he was the stake president. And he said he got a letter from the first presidency that said, Turn everything over to your counselors. Do what you need to do to heal, right? Just like you would for any other physical condition, which he did. And then he was able to come back to his service as the stake president and attend to and minister to others in his flock with renewed understanding and empathy for what they were going through. He tells the story of meeting with a young girl at an institute and she came into him and she felt like she had done something wrong, that she had caused this and she couldn't feel the spirit. What is wrong with me? What? And he stopped her and he said, do you feel like you can't feel the spirit? Do you feel depressed? That's what happened to me. You know, so, and he said, I felt her just lift uh. up and her, and her shoulders, you know, kind of perk up. And she said, yes. 
So just sharing that experience, you know, sharing the load and I've been there and it's okay. And God loves you. And this is a physical condition and there's treatment and you can get help, you know, back to your point, sharing, opening up. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, I'd like to touch on the state president's experience because how can he help the flock? How can he help these people if he is depressed and he can't feel, and all of a sudden he feels like the spirit might've withdrawn from him. You know, what spiritual challenges does depression pose for church members? I mean, that's the hard thing. So I think I have come to understand and appreciate that. I think church members have an especially difficult time with this, with depression, because we're trying to fit a disease manifest through sorrow into a religion, our faith centered on a plan of happiness, right? So you read in the scriptures, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. If there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, right? So you take it on yourself. I remember growing up being taught by incredible parents, that if you're doing what's right, you're following the spirit, then by extension, you're happy, right? You're following the commandments. You've got the spirit, you're happy. And conversely, if you're dark or sad or not social, then maybe you've done something wrong in your life and you need to repent, right? Which is exactly the opposite of what we should be thinking, you know? And that can start that shame cycle. Exactly Okay, what am I doing wrong? Maybe I'm not a good person. Exactly. Maybe there's something in my past I didn't clear up and maybe that's why this plague has hit me, you know? Exactly. It can make you crazy if you think about that. I interviewed a, a man from Texas. His name's Robert and Michelle, his wife. Amazing people, as devoted to the gospel as you come unbelievably faithful. And Robert is also a medical doctor. (laughs) He's been, he's had depression for years. He's been suicidal at times. So he has this really unique perspective. And they talk very openly about how, you know, they go to the temple every week. They put Robert's name in the temple. They pray as a family. They do everything they can spiritually for him. But they've had many people say to them, and I've heard this from others, well, if you just pray harder, if you just pray more, your depression will go away or, you know, just get a priesthood blessing and that'll take care of it. And let me be very clear. Nobody is saying that prayer doesn't work. Nobody is saying that priesthood blessings aren't effective or aren't miraculous or that temple attendance won't change your life, right, in profound ways. But my message is depression is a disease. It's not a spiritual deficit. It's not a spiritual deficit. So we can't bring these things back onto ourselves and think, oh, God doesn't love me. He must not love me. And that's why this is happening to me. Just like Lindsay, that missionary, just like that girl that Robert Millett attended to. Just there are many examples of that. It's interesting you chose that example because that's the exact example I picked from your book. Uh, Robert's statement is really powerful about the reality of depression and how it can be a trial for some to endure in this life. Yes. And to quote him, he says, you can say all the prayers you want and you can live completely righteously, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be healed of an illness. You might be, you might receive a blessing that could cure you. I firmly believe you need to use the priesthood and medical care in dealing with depression. Depression is a trial and some of us simply have to endure this one. Yes, I love that you read that. You know, I have to say, this is really important. I worry about this so much. MA with our young people 
with our teenagers who are suffering with depression, one in five teenagers will experience some mental health issue before they're adults. So I worry about this so much with our kids who are just developing their own testimonies, right? And they haven't yet been able to feel the spirit. They haven't, and they're suffering with depression. And I remember one mom said to me, my daughter came to me and she said, mom, I've been doing extra personal progress goals and I've been praying oh, extra hard and I've been oh. reading my scriptures extra long and nothing is working, mom. Why isn't God helping me like he's supposed to? We have to be very clear about, again, a mental health crisis is a physical crisis and it needs treatment. Treatment works and we can help our kids understand that. I also think it's very important when we hide our own mental health struggles or the mental health struggles of those in our family, I don't think we're doing our kids any favors because what are we teaching them? Again, we're perpetuating the stigma. And you talk about that in your book too. And Robert talks about that where he says, he talked about the importance of a parent seeing the example, setting the example and being open about their mental illness so that their kids can get treatment and not feel ashamed. Exactly right. So we have to be the example. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We are the examples and we have to open up and talk about our own struggles or the struggles of others that... I remember I got an email from a woman who said that there was a young woman in her ward who was struggling with mental health issues. And she was 14 and she was not going to school. She would barely leave her darkened room. And this woman reached out to this girl and shared her own mental health struggles when she was her age. When she remembered being in a ball behind her mother's bed, and she wrote in this email to me, I was, I remember I was 14, I was curled up in a ball with a concrete plan to end my life when my mother came home from work and found me there. So this woman shared that story when she was 14 with this girl who's 14. And just that outreach, that intentional outreach to say, I've been there. And for this little girl, this 14-year-old, to look and see this beautiful, productive woman who has a great life and who was able to get help and treatment and grow out of, you know, this place, that's inspiring, right? That's what we need more of, Yes. right? To have examples of people who can do it, who've done it, and who will reach down and lift up. Do you think some people, because I do know some people with mental health that would never share it with their children because they don't want their children to look down on them or think they're not as strong or they can't come to their parents. Now my parent isn't this superhero anymore and they have flaws. How would you speak to that? Well, I just think once again, there's value and vulnerability. And, you know, you just have to, I think honesty is always the best approach. And, you know, that's harder for some people than others. And I respect that. It is hard. It's a generational thing, too. Some of these older generations, they will never admit they have it. They won't admit they're taking medicine, even though they're doing that. Because they don't want, it's just the hide. You know, we're perfect. Our life is good. Well, I grew up in a family where you never, ever talked about mental health issues. You just didn't. That was not what we did. So I think you're right. I think it's a generational thing. And I think I believe that our younger generation now, their voices in this conversation are are so critical to changing the narrative as we move forward. And they're more open. This generation is more transparent. They're more open. They want to understand things. 
So what advice do you have for parents who are trying to help their children who suffer with depression and other mental illness? Because that can be really paralyzing for a parent when you start seeing these things present, but you don't know what the resources are. You don't know what to do. You don't know how to protect them or help them. Can you speak to that? It's just exhausting. I think I interviewed so many parents who dealt with issues and, and sometimes, to be quite honest, just finding a mental health provider is the first and hardest job. And it's expensive. (laughs) And, you know, I remember talking to one mom who said, you know, I just, I called 20 providers and two were available, two had space in their practice and they didn't take my insurance. You know, it's like, it's hard, you know, I mean, I've been, yes, I've been through this myself, you know, trying to find not only a provider, but the best fit, the best, you know, sort of personality combo for my child, you know, mm-hmm. and and if there's hospitalization and other treatment programs that are required, gosh, it's a burden, right? So I think just helping people understand that there are resources. The church has an excellent website that has tremendous resources. They have a suicide prevention website. They have a mental health website. Really? With ex- On LDS.org. Mm-hmm, with very comprehensive resources oh, that's good where you can go and find help. And keep plugging away. Don't ever, ever give up. That is the message. You cannot ever give up on a child, especially anyone. But that child, you are their advocate, and you are the person that will change the course of their life. And these things are not easy, and sometimes they're long-term projects, and sometimes they are years. It's not weeks or months. I remember the bishop's one bishop's wife told me, you know, I thought that I would just get her on some medication, and we'd get her back in school, and good. <laughs> We're yeah, good. Yeah. Well, no. Months later, a couple of years later, the struggle is real, and it can be long. Mm-hmm. So... What are some symptoms that just as a friend, as a parent, as a sibling, what should we be looking for as signs of depression or other brain illness? So I'm not a doctor, and I'm very clear about that in my book. I'm a journalist, and I compiled people's stories and their experiences. So my work is observational. It's not clinical. But I can tell you from my own experience in meeting and interviewing so many others who suffer, the depression looks different for one person than it does for the next. Psychiatrist told me, depression is a ball and chain. Some people drag it other people swing it. That's interesting. (laughs) So some people withdraw, some people, all they want to do is be alone. They're in their heads. They're under the covers. They don't want to get out of bed. They can't function in life. And others rage and anger and all sorts of those kinds of presentations. I mean, it runs the gamut. And so talking to a healthcare professional, even just your primary care doctor, about what you're feeling is a really good first step. For me, it was complete withdrawal. It was complete sort of shut down physically and emotionally and, and spiritually. I mean, I remember going to church and just not feeling anything and just hoping and praying that nobody would notice how dark and desperate I felt. And those are the moments when you see someone sitting by themselves and they don't quite look right. You know, they don't quite look like themselves. Those are the moments when it's good to just go over and say hello and how are you doing? And the symptoms are different. Some people mask it very well. And those are hard cases too. But talking to a doctor about this is really the most important first step. 
And just having that awareness, noticing. Yes. Right? Just noticing yes. that the bubbly personality is withdrawing a little bit. Just noticing the changes in behavior and yes. maybe not being afraid to approach them. Yes. And some of these things are, they're comorbidities here, you know. I mean, there can be eating restrictions, you know, people who feel like they lose their appetite. They can't take in food. Sometimes that is a symptom of extreme anxiety. I mean, there are lots of symptoms that mask other underlying problems, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. it's complicated. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's as simple as, boy, that person used to be the smiley, happy, go lucky person. And now, you know, they're sitting alone in the corner. Oh, something must be wrong. Yeah. I love what you said in your book. There's a quote by Erin, and I loved what she said. It says, I envision a day coming soon when we will visit at the bedside of those in mental health facilities as easily as in the cancer wing of the hospital, which you spoke to earlier about this story. And we can carry with us into the spiritually dark realm of depression a testimony that there is no judgment and no cause for shame. The Lord's love encompasses this ailment and so does ours. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, here's a quote that I hope you'll remember. It's one of my favorite from the book. It was from a suicide survivor named Seth, who said to me, depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. I love that. I have that on my list of quotes. Too. <laughs> that is powerful. Yeah. Depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. I think that pretty much says it all. If we can change our narrative, if we can open up, if we can truly mourn with those that mourn, that's what that scripture means. We can change lives. I'm here to tell you, after so many countless interviews, more than 150 people and countless, countless stories, that is what I took in, is that we can change this. We have the power to shift this. And it's hard and it takes time, but it's happening and it's happening slowly. And if we can be a part of that, if every person listening to this podcast now can make a decision to make a shift, to not be afraid or embarrassed, to open up, we'd have a different take on this and we would save many, many lives. Yes. And I love that the church is starting to become a little bit more open about this. In the last conference, we had Sister Huerto, who spoke about her father committing suicide. And she was very honest and transparent about her experience with that. Yes, I loved it. And she quoted that quote that I just told you, depression thrives yeah. in secrecy. She quoted that. Yeah. And you know, I just loved her talk. And I was so grateful for her doing that because that talk will be studied in relief societies and it will just, it will make such a difference. Yeah, she's incredible. In fact, in our release study this week, we're discussing that talk. Wonderful. We're having a wonderful, good, open discussion Fantastic. about that. And you know what, Mary Alice, it just takes one person in the back raising their hand to open the conversation in a room of silent people yes. who are so worried and don't want to shatter the image that they previously had. You know, it just takes one raising their hand and saying, me too. <laughs> me too. That happened to me too. And then the empathy yep. kicks in yep. and then the healing kicks That's in. That's right. Yeah. It's a great cycle. It's a virtuous cycle. Once it starts, it's a virtuous cycle. Yes, absolutely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to discuss or any message you would like to leave today with our listeners? Well, I would just say briefly that I think those of us who have suffered or those of you who are listening who are suffering currently, it's very hard. I would speak just very briefly to caretakers, because I think if you're a mom of someone who's struggling or 
a spouse of someone who's struggling or the daughter of someone who's struggling. It can be just as devastating, just as hard. So I say depression in those cases can look a lot like selfishness and feel a lot like complete withdrawal. So please stay at it and please have empathy and sympathy if you can't have empathy and understanding. And like I said with the, you know, the the children earlier, please don't give up. It's hard what you're doing and it's hard to support someone who's going through this. But your support could be the world, could mean the world to somebody who is suffering. and, And that's important, too. It's beautiful. Thank you so much, Jane. And I'd like to ask you, where can we find your book, Silent Souls Weeping? So Silent Souls Weeping is is on Amazon. It's also at Desert Book on DesertBook.com, an easy order from Amazon. So thank you so much, Mary Alice, for doing this. I, I know you've done so much good with this podcast and talking about things that are hard to talk about and that we don't often talk about. And that's a real gift to people. And I, I know people feel that. And I'm just really grateful for you doing this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution to our efforts. I appreciate it. And we want to thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. We encourage you to share this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Simply click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. We read all of our comments and it really helps us to grow. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Search podcast What Now. We never say goodbye. We say what now. Find out by tuning into our next episode. This has been a What Now podcast production.